0: You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show.
1: Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear, nuclear energy. energy, natural gas, gas. energy infrastructure, solar panels, wind turbines. There's four or five different ways to get to 1.5 degrees, four or five different ways to get to net zero.
0: There's no lack of potential clean energy solutions for all these different sectors of the economy. And there are very few areas where the only solution in 30 years is going to be using fossil fuels. For June 14th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Wow, our 200th regular show, I can hardly believe it. Even so, the energy transition is just getting going with so much work yet to do and so much yet to talk about. Another 200 shows would barely scratch the surface, and we are absolutely looking forward to doing them. To mark this milestone, we wanted to do a little something different, just as we did for our 100th show. We thought we'd do a little retrospective this time and look back over the progress of the energy transition since we launched the show in the fall of 2015 because a lot has changed since then, but it's not always easy to see how massively and how quickly things have changed when you've been following the evolution on a day-to-day basis. So we're taking a look back and revisiting some of the major changes that have happened. Among other topics, we revisit the so-called war on coal, the concept of the quote-unquote energy transition, the progress of wind and solar, the changing perspectives about the future of natural gas, the fading role for so-called baseload power, the astonishingly rapid uptake of EVs, and the changing views about nuclear power. At the same time, we wanted to take a moment to reflect on the progress of our show over those seven and a half years, and take stock of what we have learned, as well as how the media landscape for podcasts in general has changed, and why we are feeling more confident than ever about our focus and our business strategy, which was extremely contrarian when we started. And since this is a retrospective from our point of view, we thought it would be best to do something we have only done once before in episode 139. We're turning the tables so that our guest is the interviewer and I am the interviewee. So I invited Jeff St. John, one of my absolute favorite energy journalists, to have this conversation with me. Jeff is currently the director of news and special projects at Canary Media, But he's been following and writing about the energy transition for about as long as I have. A decade ago, we both had bylines at Green Tech Media, now GTM, and I have admired his well-researched and thoughtful articles ever since. So I was very pleased that he agreed to be my conversation partner for this special episode. But before we go to the interview, we want to remind our annual listeners that there are two ways you can share the Energy Transition show with a friend or colleague. First, every annual subscriber has three share links per year that they can give to someone else. Each share link will give the recipient one free month of access to the show, which will let them listen to the two most recent full episodes. And second, there is a simple form on our website that you can use to give a year subscription to a friend. To access both of these features, just log into our website, click on your name in the upper right-hand corner, and go to the Manage Subscription page, where you'll find the Gift Accounts button. And if you're an annual subscriber looking to hire new talent, don't forget to post any open jobs you are trying to fill on our exclusive members-only job board. Or, if you're an annual subscriber looking for a new gig in the energy transition, be sure to check out the latest postings. As I record this, there are openings for an editorial manager, a director at a state PUC, an analyst with a research group, various project manager roles, and many more all roles that are in support of the energy transition. Some of them are even full-time remote work opportunities. And finally, Announcements, 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 announcements. We'd like to welcome our latest group subscriber. Excel Energy of Colorado is part of Minnesota based Excel Energy, a regulated electric utility and natural gas delivery company serving more than 3.7 million electric customers and 2.1 million natural gas customers across parts of eight U.S. states. We're so pleased to have them listening to our complete shows. And now, our conversation with Jeff St. John, recorded May 2, 2023. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Jeff, to the Energy Transition Show.
1: Thanks, Chris. It's great
0: to be here. Our producer, Justin, suggested that we use the occasion of our 200th episode to do a little retrospective on the progress of the energy transition since we launched the show in late 2015, which I thought was a great idea. And he suggested that instead of the usual format where I'm interviewing the guest, that I find someone who's been following the energy transition all that time as well to sort of share the guest and hosting duties with me. And you were the first person I thought of because. I followed your work since well before we even launched the podcast when you were writing for GTM. And I've come to trust your work and your scholarship. In fact, I've probably cited more of your articles in the show notes of our previous shows than maybe any other energy journalist. So I'm really pleased that you are willing to come on the show and to do this little retrospective with me. Can't think of a better person to journey down this memory lane with
1: me. Thank you so much, Chris. I must tell you that your work on GTM was some of the first encounters I had with really thoughtful, nuanced, and in-depth kind of analysis of the issues that I, as a old newspaper reporter, jumping into the green tech space with my eyes closed and my arms open. Let me just say that I learned as much from you as you learned from me, and I'm glad that we're here together to talk.
0: Oh, How nice to hear that. Well, thanks very much.
1: Chris, I want to start with what's changed in the energy transition over the past seven and a half years. and Then I think we should talk a little bit about the podcast itself and your journey as a podcasting host. Sound good? Yeah, works for me. Great. So taking it from the beginning, the very first episode of the show titled The War on Coal was recorded August 13th, 2015. And in it, you and Mike Grunwald discussed all the reasons why coal power was on its way out and why those reasons were largely not because President Obama had declared a war on coal as a lot of coal industry supporters and Republicans had been claiming. I think that seems pretty obvious now, but it definitely wasn't then. A lot of people believed that whole war on coal line in 2015.
0: Yeah, that's right. History has proved that the trends in the power sector that we talked about in that first show, which were already well underway, had little to do with the administration's position on coal and everything to do with competition from cheaper shale gas and eventually renewables. And although the EPA's cracking down on the pollution from coal plants, starting with the Clean Air Act of 1990 and signed into law by President George W. Bush, did play a role in that because coal plant operators had to invest in cleaning up the emissions from their plants, which increased the cost of coal power, which was actually a crucially important thing to do because those pollutants were causing acid rain and we were losing forests at an alarming rate. And poisoning a lot of fish and other creatures, and the Clean Air Act of 1990 was the beginning of the effort to stop that damage. Then in 2011, when Obama was in his first term, the EPA issued a rule commonly known as the MATS rule limiting the amount of mercury and other toxic air pollutants emitted by power plants, and that rule put further pressure on coal plants to clean up their act. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, or EIA, in 2015, the U.S. had 427 coal power plants. In 2021, it had 269. That's a 37% drop. Coal power plant capacity fell by 20% during the same period, so capacity factors fell even harder. From 2015 to 2022, power generation from coal fell by 39%. So again, that's just over the period of time since we started the show. In fact, in April and July of 2015, just months before we launched the show, coal's share of power generation had fallen below the share of gas-fired power generation for the first and second times ever. And in July 2015, coal had just under a 35% share of the U.S. power generation mix, down from over half in 2011. So as we just discussed with Jamie Van Nostrand in episode 198, even in the hardcore bastion of coal country, West Virginia, it was clear, even in 2015, that coal was already well into decline and would continue to decline. And that was right in the middle of what he called the lost decade for West Virginia, when it should have been grasping the nettle of the energy transition, but instead engaged in pure denial about it. Instead, Their politicians continued to lie to their constituents about the real reasons for the decline of coal and tried to treat it like a political football, continuing to blame the imaginary war on coal, which was never a war on coal. It was a legitimate effort to stop the toxic emissions that were destroying life on earth. So (laughs) calling it a war and putting the focus on coal and the jobs in the coal sector that would be at risk while completely dismissing and ignoring the environmental damage that we were experiencing was just pure politics. But I'm glad we started the show with that episode because, in many ways, it really set the tone for the stories that we would cover in the subsequent years. In fact, it was more than a little bit prophetic. As we mentioned in the news of episode 198, by 2030, S&P Global Market Intelligence forecast that the share of coal-fired power generation in the U.S. will be down to around 10%. For all the reasons we discussed in that episode. So, again, that's 10% by 2030, down from over half in 2011. Mm-hmm. So, I feel like that was really a good foot to start up this show on. And Mike Grunwald is great. I had long admired his work as a journalist and was just thrilled to have him be our first guest. I really feel like it set us off on the right foot.
1: Agreed. Mike Grunwald does write for Canary Media, and we're very thrilled to have him contributing to us as well. Oh, I didn't know that he was writing for Canary, too, now. That's cool. Yeah, he does a food feeding the planet, kind of a green ag section for us. It's really good stuff. Yeah, he's got a companion podcast with that, too. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. But it wasn't necessarily obvious when you launched the show in 2015 that the energy transition was really going to take off was it no well it was obvious to us and a handful of others but back then it really
0: felt like a pretty bold move to even name the show the energy transition show because energy transition wasn't really a phrase that very many people were using yet at least not outside of germany where the energy which means energy transition in german had been underway for decades already. I don't think a lot of people were even sold on the idea of an energy transition back then, let alone the phrase. I first used the phrase energy transition somewhere in the mid-2000s, as I recall, and I know I used it in print as an energy journalist in 2010, if not earlier. One of the earliest uses of the phrase I could find on the GTM website was from an article I wrote for them as a freelancer in April 2013, so a decade ago, titled, Can the Utility Industry Survive the Energy Transition? Although they had used it a few times before that, mainly in articles by editor Eric Wesoff.
1: But you were writing for GTM then as well. Does your recall match with mine? Well, I'd say that we were cautiously optimistic. I joined GTM in 2008 right at the cusp of the first big clean tech investment bubble and then cut my teeth on covering that bubble's bursting, which was a bit of a misdirection, I think, in terms of the underlying trends on coal that you've described and then we were thrust into the Obama administration's efforts to rejuvenate what we're now calling the energy transition in the form of the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act. But that was an economic rescue, right, with clean technology development playing a role, but as a subcurrent to the broader attempts to prevent the Great Recession from becoming something worse. Right. And so we were publishing artwork by authors like you and publishing analysis from groups like RMI which supports Canary Media, and on concepts like grid defection and load defection, that is the whole concept of the, quote, utility death spiral, where distributed solar and batteries undermine the century-old utility business model, which is tied up in big assets like coal plants. But it all seemed very theoretical at the time, no matter how necessary. Today, theoretical, not so much
0: yeah you're really bringing me back there now i remember when i started at rmi in 2015 the utility death spiral was something we were talking about quite a lot and you're right at that point it was more of a theoretical outcome i think since then we've maybe heard more about what we were calling at the time load defection rather than straight grid defection but the problems are certainly starting to play out in the real world by now. I mean, even the few energy podcasts and energy-focused media like GTM and New Energy Finance that existed back then, they weren't really using the phrase energy transition yet. And the focus hadn't yet congealed around the energy transition, again, outside of Germany. They were more talking about the various things that were happening in the energy sector and what then we called clean tech. But when we launched the show in 2015, The global energy transition still wasn't really a thing yet, but I was sure that it would be and I knew that I wanted our show to be focused on it. Not just clean tech and not just energy, quote unquote, and not all the other things that fall under the larger umbrellas of sustainability and environmentalism, but the transition in energy very specifically. And we have hewed closely to that focus ever since. In fact, I've turned down a lot of pitches and suggestions to do shows that were about adjacent topics. The farthest we've strayed from that focus is I think our shows on climate science and we did those shows mainly because it's essential to understand the state of the climate and the trajectory of global warming, to even understand why the energy transition is necessary and to understand which solutions are most important or maybe most viable. And because nobody was really doing solid, well-researched, technical shows on climate science yet. So, I really felt like that needed to be done, and in fact, I suspect that the shows we've done on climate science are still the most comprehensive and detailed treatments of climate science in the podcast domain. All the other podcasts I've come across that do discuss climate science, I'd give them a geek rating of zero or maybe one, you know, not ten. Of course, there certainly could be some that I'm not aware of, but to the best of my knowledge, Ours is still the only show that has really delved into, for example, the IPCC framework with its complex SSPs and RCPs and IMs and tried to explain what it all means to a lay audience across multiple shows. And of course, it was the PhD thesis of our producer, Justin Ritchie, that stimulated the global recognition that the most extreme warming scenario, RCP8.5 was extremely unlikely and is not, as has been widely asserted in the literature, a quote unquote business as usual scenario. So we've really done our research on climate science and it was, I have gotta tell you, really hard work, <laughs> which is probably why more shows don't do it. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of our coverage of it, even though it isn't directly under the energy transition heading, but it is actually another great example of how things have changed a lot since 2015. I mean, back then, RCP 8.5 was taken as a business-as-usual scenario, and we had a lot of apocalyptic stories about how we're headed for 10 feet of sea level rise or whatever. Fortunately, I think we're seeing less of that sort of thing now, mainly because journalists are finally doing their homework and starting to understand that RCP 8.5 is, for all intents and purposes, off the table, and that we really need to focus on getting to net zero by 2050, And that is actually doable through a successful energy transition. In fact, I'll just make that point more explicitly. I think climate and energy journalism are far better now than they were in 2015. They're still not great and there's still a lot of education needed out there, but I think they're quite a bit better than they were then.
1: I completely agree. I mean, there is still a bit of a dichotomy between apocalypse and Pollyanna, I suppose. But certainly people understand both the threat and the panoply of solutions much more clearly, I think, than was the case. Certainly I do as well. It's been a learning curve. Yeah, and I think a lot of journalists too are just starting
0: to do their homework a lot more. I think back then, certainly in the early 2010s, You know, there was a lot of generalist journalists who really didn't know anything in particular about energy, and they were mostly rewriting press releases or just sort of repeating what industry sources had told them in an uncritical way, and I think very few of them had actually ever popped open a spreadsheet and downloaded some EIA data and tried to figure out what's real or tried to fact check what they were hearing, Mm -hmm. and I think
1: that's just a lot more common now. I agree. Do in no little part to, I'd say work of the type that you're doing. Yeah. Let's talk about some data. Cause I know you love data. How has the energy transition progressed since you launched the show seven and a half years ago? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes
0: cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. As I mentioned in today's conversation, Germany closed down its last three nuclear power plants on April 15, 2023, marking the end of more than six decades of nuclear power there. The usual commentary ensued, with climate hawks and nuke nuts decrying the shutdown of the clean power capacity and pointing to the modest increase in Germany's coal-fired power generation as evidence that the phase-out was a terrible mistake. While some energy transition advocates pointed out that Germany plans to close its last coal-fired power plant no later than 2038 with a 2030 deadline in some areas, noting that the shutdown will open the door for more investment into renewable generation. But I feel like it's almost pointless to revisit any argument, pro or con, on Germany's nuclear phase-out. It's become the poster child of the energy transition, with every energy tribe staking out ideological immovable positions on the matter. I doubt very much that anyone's mind could be changed by any argument or evidence. In any case, almost no one, outside of Germany, seems to have the slightest understanding of the history of that movement, and frankly, I don't think they care to. They just want to use it as a cudgel with which to beat their respective dead horses. Those who do want to understand that history can listen to our conversations with Craig Morris in Episode 4, with Claude Termas in Episode 47, and Patrick Reichen in Episode 83. They can also see the Twitter threads by Toby Kellner that I link to in the show notes. The reality is that Germany's protests against nuclear power have been going on since the 1970s, predating climate concerns by decades, and those issues were never going to be just swept away by climate concerns. Not when there are readily available and cheap renewables to replace the retired nuclear capacity. Everyone who characterizes this phase-out as a wrong-headed push by environmentalists, or who says that it all started with the Chernobyl meltdown in 1986, or the Fukushima disaster in 2011, simply doesn't know what they're talking about. I will, however, offer just a few facts for context. First, as I mentioned in the interview, nuclear power was already down to just 6% of Germany's supply mix before these final three units were shut down. Non-hydro renewables in Germany already provide 40% of the country's power, and Germany plans to build enough new renewables next year alone to make up for all of the power lost from those last three reactors. And by 2030, they'll be building renewables equivalent to the generation of 30 nuclear power plants every year. Leaving aside all the politics and the posturing, nuclear was, in fact, already a small player in Germany's power sector, and the hole it leaves will be quickly filled by clean renewables, not coal. Second, the increase in Germany's coal-powered electricity generation over the past two years was the result of a lot of complex interactions in various sources of generation and the European power markets. Pinning it all on the nuclear phase-out, while that may make for convenient politicking, is just incorrect. If anyone actually wants to understand these complex factors, they can see the data links in the show notes and listen to episode 4. Third, Germany's current target is to have 80% renewable power generation by 2030. That is one of the most ambitious targets in the world, far more ambitious than the targets of the host countries where many of Germany's critics live. And unlike those countries, Germany has a long track record of actually executing on its plans and meeting its targets. Fourth, Germany's transition to renewables so far has led to its having the most reliable grid in Europe, completely the opposite of what the critics of its nuclear phase-out claimed, and they have done sophisticated modeling to demonstrate that grid power can remain 100% secure at all times on an hourly basis through 2045 as that transition proceeds. In short, the retirement of its nuclear fleet does not in any way imperil the reliability of its grid power. So, please... Let's move on. There's no point in speculating about how much more Germany's use of coal would have declined if Germany had kept its nuclear fleet running. It's over. Nuclear power is done in Germany. Those plants are never going to be switched back on, and there's no point in continuing to relitigate the issue. Let's focus on how to finish the job of the energy transition, especially in countries like the U.S. that still can't even set a national decarbonization target, let alone make a plan to meet it and execute on it. Item 2. Those who are interested in Episode 194 on the material requirements of the energy transition will appreciate this. Apple announced on April 13th that by 2025, it will use 100% recycled cobalt in Apple design. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at, transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melzheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.